Thanks for listening to our podcast. The following is a ministry of Orchard Bible Church in Centennial, Colorado. Please join us on Sunday mornings. For more details, visit us online at orchardbible.org. All right, today's scripture reading is from Genesis 44, 33 through 34. This is the word of God. Now, therefore, please let your servant remain instead of the boy as a servant to my Lord, and let the the boy go back with his brothers. For how can I go back to my father if the boy is not with me? I fear to see the evil that would find my father. Let's pray. Our Father, we're so grateful for your word this morning, and uh, Lord, we just pray your Holy Spirit would come upon us with power, uh, that we might be convicted, that we might be comforted, that we might be transformed for Jesus' sake. Amen. Please be seated. Chuck Swindoll tells a true story that I almost removed from my message because Ben Lewis beat me to it a couple of weeks ago. (laughs) But I decided to leave it in because it's too perfect for my subject matter this morning, so apologies to those hearing it again. This is a letter actually written by someone and sent to the Internal Revenue Service. The letter began, Dear Sir, I haven't been able to sleep because last year when I filled out my income tax report, I deliberately misrepresented my income. I'm enclosing a check for $150. Then came the closing line. If I still can't sleep, I'll send you the rest. (laughs) Guilt is an interesting thing, isn't it? It can keep us up at night or worse. But here's the truth. Experiencing guilt for wrongdoing not yet repented of is actually a mercy from God. If the Lord shows you abundant mercy, he will not let you rest until you repent. In today's passage, the sons of Israel come face to face with the guilt of their sin committed 22 years earlier. Sin against their brother, sin against their father, and sin against the Lord. And the tension has been building in this drama, hasn't it? The brothers have been running, but they cannot escape the judgment and mercy of the God pursuing them. They ran into something completely unexpected in our passage last week, as Joseph, still known only to them as this high-ranking viceroy of the Pharaoh of Egypt, shows them unusual, lavish kindness in this great feast where they unknowingly ate and drank with the very brother they nearly killed decades earlier and had sold into slavery. Today begins the climax of the entire Joseph narrative, the pinnacle of all 14 chapters of Genesis we will cover in this series, as Joseph has one final test for his brothers, and it comes by trickery. And as we will see, it is an ingenious deception that would expose not only the disposition of his brothers, but would also expose their spiritual condition before God. We're going to look at this story in two acts. 
You can see this in your bulletin in the outline. Act 1 is the test that Joseph gives his brothers. And Act 2 is the result of the test. And then we'll consider some application for us today. So let's look first at Act 1. I'm going to read this passage starting in chapter 44, verse 1. Just look at your own Bibles and follow along with me. We're going to go through verse 13. Then he, that is Joseph, commanded the steward of his house, fill the men's sacks with food as much as they can carry, and put each man's money in the mouth of his sack. And put my cup, the silver cup, in the mouth of the sack of the youngest, with his money for the grain. And he did as Joseph told him. As soon as the morning was light, the men were sent away with their donkeys. They had gone only a short distance from the city. Now Joseph said to his steward, up, follow after the men, and when you overtake them, say to them, why have you repaid evil for good? Is it not from this that my Lord drinks, and by this that he practices divination? You have done evil in doing this. When he overtook them, he spoke them these words. They said to him, Why does my Lord speak such words as these? Far be it from your servants to do such a thing. Behold, the money that we found in the mouths of our sacks we brought back to you from the land of Canaan. How then could we steal silver or gold from, our, from your Lord's house? Whichever of your servants is found with it shall die. And we also will be my Lord's servants. He said, let it be as you say. He who is found with it shall be my servant, and the rest of you shall be innocent. Then each man quickly lowered his sack to the ground, and each man opened his sack. And he searched, beginning with the eldest and ending with the youngest. And the cup was found in Benjamin's sack. Then they tore their clothes, and every man loaded his donkey, and they returned to the city. Let's just stop there. And go slowly through what's happening here. Remember the night before they had this huge feast and the wine was flowing. And the Hebrew at the end of the previous chapter makes clear that they drank too much. And as Gordon Wenham writes, hangovers in scripture and in life are often unpleasant. And such is the case here. While the brothers are sleeping things off, Joseph and his steward set them up by putting Joseph's silver cup in Benjamin's sack. Now let me just deal with something uh, right up front in verse 5 because it's mentioned again later when Joseph speaks to his brothers. It says that this cup was used for divination. In the ancient Near East, people would pour oil into a cup of water and try to read the future by what shapes the oil would take on the surface of the water. A related practice you may have heard of is reading the tea leaves, where they would float the leaves on the water. Now, most scholars believe this was part of the ruse, part of Joseph's Egyptian disguise, that he was not actually practicing divination, which was a pagan custom later forbidden in Israel. It seems elsewhere Joseph gets his information directly from the Lord, doesn't it? By way of dreams, So I think this cup of divination is best understood as part of this elaborate deception. It really doesn't matter, however, because the whole purpose of this silver cup is to create an occasion to bring a charge against Benjamin, which will put the rest of the brothers to the test. So as the sun rose, the brothers got up, saddled their donkeys, headed home for Canaan. And I could just see them saying to one another, guys... 
that couldn't have gone any better. I mean, we have sacks of grain. We have all the food we need. We got our silver. We got Simeon back. Benjamin is safe. How about that meal last night and the wine? It's almost too good to be true. But they didn't get too far before Joseph's steward and his posse caught up with them and made this accusation about the stolen silver cup. Now, the brothers respond very strongly. How could you say such a thing? I mean, think about it. We brought the silver back from Canaan because it was a mistake. Why would we do that and then steal something else? I mean, it doesn't make sense. Thieves don't return merchandise. And they're so confident that they offer outrageous terms. Listen, if one of us has that cup, please kill him. The rest of us will be your slaves. Well, the steward who knows what's going to happen dials it back. He dials their terms back to only what's necessary for Joseph's plan. Hey, no one has to die here. Okay, if someone has it, only that man will be guilty. He will become our slave. The rest of you will not be charged. You can go home. Now notice the confidence here in verse 11. Each man quickly lowered his sack to the ground and opened it. Like, hey, be my guest. Do all you want. Look all you want. And notice the steward doesn't go directly to Benjamin's sack. But as one writer said, in an Oscar-worthy performance... He carefully searches the men's sacks in the same order they were served at the great banquet the night before, eldest to the youngest. And as he approaches the last couple of sacks, you can imagine the brothers folding their arms and rolling their eyes. But sure enough, the cup was found where planted with Benjamin. And they are beside themselves and spontaneously tear their clothes, which is a a sign of deep emotional distress, and all of them load their donkeys and go back to the city. Now, this test of the brothers that Joseph devises here is absolutely ingenious, and I want you to understand what he's doing here. Remember, Joseph and Benjamin were the only two sons of Jacob that were born to Rachel, Jacob's favorite. Joseph wants to be certain that his brothers have changed. They're they're truly sorry for the sin 22 years ago. So he sets them up in a scenario as close as possible to the original event. In that original situation, decades earlier, the ten brothers betrayed the favored son of Rachel into slavery to selfishly make things better for themselves. That's the situation the brothers are faced with yet again. They can selfishly make things better for themselves and go home free. They just have to do the same thing they did before. Betray the favored son of Rachel into slavery. Only this time, it's Benjamin, who in the eyes of the ten brothers also got preferential treatment. Not only from their father, but from this Egyptian official at the banquet the night before. Five times the amount of food that they got. And this time, it's not 20 pieces of silver they would gain, but something far more, far greater, something far more valuable, their own freedom to go home. Now, technically, it seems they could almost do this with a clear conscience. 
look, we can't control what happens to Benjamin. I mean, in the hands of this powerful Egyptian, frankly, Benjamin at least appears to be guilty. Our father said before we left, if I am bereaved, I am bereaved. Well, God is sovereign. Maybe Jacob is bereaved. Maybe we go home and tell him. So what will the ten brothers do? What will be their attitude toward the favored son of Rachel this time? Will they once again betray their half-brother? Are they the same envious, self-serving men they once were, or have they changed? Will they pass Joseph's test? Well, it looks good so far, doesn't it? Whereas the first time, they were all in unity sending Rachel's son to Egypt as a slave... This time they're in unity to not send Rachel's son to Egypt as a slave, but instead to go back to Egypt with him. It appears these brothers are in this together as a family. You go, we go. They won't betray Benjamin. And so already we see something new happening here, don't we? There's a new sense of unity that is developed. They all return to Egypt because of their commitment to Benjamin. The brothers are of one accord without any grumbling or dissent. As one commentator says, they say nothing, but their actions speak louder than words. When Joseph disappeared, it was only Jacob who tore his clothes. Now all the brothers do. The first clear sign of solidarity. Well, let's move to the second act of the story. I'll start reading in verse 14. And we'll go to the end of the chapter. Please follow along in your own Bibles. When Judah and his brothers came to Joseph's house, he was still there. They fell before him to the ground. Joseph said to them, what deed is this that you have done? Do you not know that a man like me can indeed practice divination? And Judah said, what shall we say to my Lord? What shall we speak? Or how can we clear ourselves? God has found out the guilt of your servants. Behold, we are my Lord's servants, both we and he also in whose hand the cup has been found. But he said, far be it from me that I should do so. Only the man in whose hand the cup was found shall be my servant. But as for you, go up in peace to your father. Then Judah went up to him and said, Oh, my Lord, please let your servant speak a word in my Lord's ears and let not your anger burn against your servant, for you are like Pharaoh himself. My Lord asked his servant, saying, Have you a father or a brother? And we said to my Lord, We have a father, an old man, and a young brother, and the child of his old age. His brother is dead, and he alone is left of his mother's children, and his father loves him. And Then you said to your servants, bring him down to me that I may set my eyes on him. We said to my Lord, the boy cannot leave his father, for if he should leave his father, his father would die. Then you said to your servants, unless your youngest brother comes down with you, you shall not see my face again. When we went back to your servant, my father, we told him the words of my Lord. And when our father said, said, go again, buy us a little food, we said, we cannot go down. If our youngest brother goes with us, then we will go down. For we cannot see the man's face unless our youngest brother is with us. Then your servant, my father, said to us, You know that my wife bore me two sons. One left me, and I said, Surely he has been torn to pieces, and I have never seen him since. If you take this one also from me and harm happens to him, you will bring down my gray hairs in evil to Sheol. 
Now therefore, as soon as I come to your servant, my father, and the boy is not with us, then as his life is bound up in the boy's life, as soon as he sees the boy is not with us, he will die, and your servants will bring down the gray hairs of your servant, our father, with sorrow to Sheol. For your servant became a pledge of safety for the boy to my father, saying, if I do not bring him back to you, then I shall bear the blame before my father all my life. Now therefore, please let your servant remain instead of the boy as a servant to my Lord and let the boy go back with his brothers. For how can I go back to my father if the boy is not with me? I fear to see the evil that would find my father. This is just magnificent on a number of levels. Let's just go through this together. First, notice in verse 14, it says, when Judah and his brothers reached Joseph's house. Normally, we would expect to read Reuben and his brothers because he was the oldest. But as we saw last week, Judah has assumed the leadership role, and he will speak on the brothers' behalf. And then at the end of verse 14, they fell before him to the ground. Well, where did we see that before? The brothers' sheaves bowing down to Joseph's sheaf, the 11 stars bowing down. Kent Hughes points out the dynamic fulfillment of Joseph's dream so far in the story. In chapter 42, it says, they bowed themselves before him with their faces to the ground. Chapter 43, they bowed their heads and prostrated themselves. Now in chapter 44, they fell before him to the ground. As Brueggemann says, the dream is happening. The future is at work toward life. But in their fearfulness, the brothers do not notice. And so in verse 16, Judah begins to speak. What shall we say? Or how can we clear ourselves? God has found out the guilt of your servants. Behold, we are my Lord's servants, both we and and also he in whose hand the cup has been found. Okay, in a fascinating juxtaposition, Judah talks about clearing themselves as if they're innocent, and then God finding their guilt. So what's happening here? Well, this is what's happening. Judah knows they're guilty, and it's not because of the silver cup. He's convicted for the sin they committed against Joseph over 20 years ago. God has exposed them, and they're not going to run anymore. We are all your slaves, he says. Well, Joseph turns the screws again on this test. He says, no. It's just your youngest brother that needs to be my slave. His test is reaching a fever pitch. You guys may go free. Go home. Go home to your father in peace. Shalom. Then verse 18. Judah went up to him. This is phenomenal. I just imagine a scene, in maybe more contemporary, like 18th century British Empire. A peasant foreigner whose brother is accused of theft from the royal court, after being dismissed, walks up to the ruler, gasp, this nothing Hebrew, boldly approaching the one to whom belong the authority to execute justice however he saw fit. He puts his life on the line literally right here and begins to speak. One renowned commentator says, this is one of the manliest, most straightforward speeches ever delivered by any man. 
For depth of feeling and sincerity of purpose, it stands unexcelled. Donald Gray Barnhouse called it the most moving address in all the word of God. Judah starts where he has to with absolute humility. He says, please let me speak. Please hold back your anger. I understand you have the unchecked authority of the king of Egypt. You could put me to death right now with no apology or explanation. When you first asked us about our family, he says, we told you about our father and the son that he had. This is the only son of his mother since his brother is dead. And my father loves him. When you told us to bring him to you, we didn't want to because we literally thought our father would die. And when you gave us no choice, our father said this, verse 27, you know that my wife bore me two sons. One left me, and I said, surely he's been torn to pieces, and I have never seen him since. Let me just pause the speech for a minute. I cannot overstate the emotional poignancy of this moment. Keep in mind, this is the first time Joseph is hearing what happened 22 years ago when his father was told about him. First time. Jacob thought he'd been torn to pieces and killed. Joseph is hearing this for the first time. Joseph can also see that his brothers have forgiven their father's favoritism. For Judah, it's just a matter of fact that Jacob had two favorite sons and one of them was not Judah. The ten brothers have come to terms with that. He's not bitter about the favoritism anymore. He knows Jacob loves Benjamin more than him or any of his brothers. Doesn't matter. Because for Judah, it's not about Judah anymore. Do you see that? Remarkable transformation. All Judah can think about is his own guilt and how much he loves his father and that he would do anything to prevent his father's grief. Judah refers to his father 14 times in the speech. So as Ken Matthews notes, rather than resist the special love that Jacob has for Benjamin, Judah appeals to it as a reason for mercy. He continues in verse 30. So if we go back to our father and Benjamin is not with us, our father will die in grief. Our father's life is bound up in Benjamin's life, he said, meaning their hearts beat as one. Judah continues, verse 32, I personally promised my father to bring him back. If I don't bring him back, I would bear the blame the rest of my life. I know what this will mean for my dad, and I can't do it. I won't do it. Verse 33, please take me instead. Take my life in Benjamin's place as your slave and let Benjamin go home free with his brothers to our father. I beg you. Wow. Who is this guy? This is the same man that sold his brother to slavery. The same guy who sleeps with a prostitute and then self-righteously tries to condemn her. Bring her out and let her be burned. Now his plea is to be imprisoned in Benjamin's place. Waltke notes, <clears throat> this is the first instance of human substitution in the scripture. Judah so feels for his father that he begs to sacrifice himself 
for a brother more loved than him. 22 years earlier, he couldn't care less what his father thought or what his brother felt. If it wasn't for Reuben, uh, Joseph would be dead. Now, Judah says, we can't do this to our dad. We can't do this to our brother. Judah is a new man, isn't he? I hope you can see why I titled this sermon with some ambiguity. Because even though it's Judah that offers himself as a redeemer to purchase Benjamin out of slavery, what we have just read shows it's really Judah that's been redeemed. As Chuck Swindoll says, God has changed Judah's heart. God had changed them all. I don't know what Joseph was expecting in the brother's response to his test, but it's hard to imagine a better response than this. Not only did the brothers not betray Benjamin, they pleaded for him and even offered to stay in his place. Judah and his brothers have been transformed, and it is a miracle. We usually think of Joseph's rags to riches as the miracle in the Joseph story. But as John Walton says, the transformation of the brothers represented in Judah is every bit as miraculous as the transformation in the status of Joseph. Let me just point something else out. Just from a literary perspective, the author here in Genesis highlights this speech in at least three ways. First of all, this is the longest speech in Genesis by anyone. Second of all, And I don't have time to show you, but the entire Joseph story from where we began in chapter 37 all the way to the end in chapter 50 can be mapped out in what's called a chiasm, where the first part of the story is parallel to the last part of the story. The second part of the story is parallel to the second to last part, and so on. And in the very middle, the climax is this very speech by Judah. Using this literary structure, the author points us right here to the centerpiece of the drama, the fulcrum of the turning point of the entire story. Third, Judah, in his leadership, consider this, unifies all 12 brothers here, all 12 sons of Jacob, like Judah's descendant, King David, would do in his leadership, bringing all the tribes of Israel together in unity in the monarchy. We have to end the story with Judah's speech and a little bit of a cliffhanger, and we'll pick it up next week with Joseph's response. But for the balance of our time today, I want to consider some rich application from what we've seen in our text. I have two principles to consider. You can see them in your outline. First, let's examine... Judah's actions as they relate to his past sin because he demonstrates for us what is fundamental to genuine repentance. The great Old Testament scholar Gordon Wenham says this of Judah in our text. Apart from possibly the parable of the prodigal son, there is no more moving example of true contrition and repentance to be found in Scripture. I want to point out five elements of genuine repentance we can see here in Judah, and I've listed them in your outline. Number one, genuine repentance is humble. Perhaps most fundamentally, repentance must come from a posture of humility. 
Christopher Morgan says, True repentance always begins by understanding the astonishing truth of this simple statement. Only God is good. In general, we fallen creatures grossly underestimate the holiness of God. Remember the rich young ruler asking Jesus, What good thing must I do? Or good teacher, what must I do? Jesus says, why do you call me good? Why do you ask me about what is good? Jesus knew his heart that he sought to justify himself as someone good. The man needed to understand there's no one good but God alone. Judah had come to understand God's goodness and his justice. Judah now realizes God does not overlook an unrepented offense. And also, Judah humbly has come to understand God's sovereignty in his circumstances. He understood God could use a silver cup, which he had nothing to do with, to expose his own guilt for something else. Judah had not stolen, nor had he any knowledge of the silver cup, but he interpreted the judgment against his brothers as God's just retribution for their unrepented of crime against Joseph. I wonder if the Holy Spirit has ever done that with you. Do you understand God's sovereignty in your circumstances with humility? Have you experienced things happening that seem to be designed by God to get your attention? Perhaps refusing to deal with a sin in your own heart that you needed to confess and repent of. Don't ignore the promptings of the Spirit, even if they seem unrelated. That's the Lord's mercy. In his abundant mercy, he will not let you rest until you repent. In God's mercy, he tracked Judah and his brothers down, and they responded in humility and utter dependence on God. Repentance is humble. Number two, genuine repentance is confessional. Judah was truthful about his guilt. He owned up to his sin and accepted the just consequences for his actions. Repentance involves telling the truth about our own failures, to renounce the actions we've done as evil. Proverbs 28, 13, whoever conceals his transgressions will not prosper, but he who confesses and forsakes them will obtain mercy. One commentator said, confession means to give God glory by acknowledging sin and God's right to punish it. It's not just regret because you were found out or because you don't like the consequences. Paul tells us in 2 Corinthians, doesn't he, that that's the difference between worldly sorrow and godly repentance. Worldly sorrow focuses on the consequences. Godly repentance focuses on the truth about our sin and agrees with the consequences. The brothers, as represented by Judah, confess their corporate guilt and understand they deserve judgment. They agree with the consequences. Judah's plea renounces that sin as evil. Repentance is confessional. Number three, genuine repentance is sacrificial. Now, of course, Judah offers himself as a sacrifice in Benjamin's place, but I'm going to uh, deal with that in the next point. Here I'm talking about something else. We sacrifice something when we confess and repent. We give something up. 
We give up nuancing or making excuses to lessen the offense. We give up deflecting our guilt to another party. We give up qualifying and caveating what we're repenting of. Consider Judah. Jacob's favoritism had not changed. It's really important. That's what makes this situation more complex. Jacob's favoritism was a real thing and very destructive to the relationships between the brothers. Very destructive. We've talked about that several times. Judah doesn't qualify his repentance or deflect a little of the guilt. He overlooks the favoritism because that's not his issue. Judah did not say this. Look, I'm not saying what I did was right 20 years ago. Okay, that was wrong. I own that. But here's what you have to understand. Our father overtly favored these two sons. And those wounds from a father go very deep. Besides, it was Benjamin that had the cup, not me. So maybe this is God's sovereign way of teaching Jacob a lesson. Can't play favorites. Judah doesn't do that, does he? He overlooks the favoritism and even embraces it. He gives all that up for genuine repentance. And this complexity is normal in a conflict, isn't it? It's rarely simple. When's the last time you confessed wrongdoing to someone and didn't have in the back of your mind things that they did or others did to make it so hard? This is why Judah is such a great example here because this is realistic. Jacob's favoritism hasn't changed. Maybe your spouse hasn't changed in the things that bother you. Maybe your mother or father haven't changed in the things that get under your skin and incited you to act in a sinful way. No, that's deflecting and qualifying and excusing. Give it up, my friend. Sacrifice it like Judah did. All of that about my father Jacob may be true, and it's not the issue right now. This is what I did wrong. And Judah took responsibility for his father's well-being. That's true repentance. It doesn't keep score. Repentance is sacrificial. Number four, genuine repentance is visible. We read often in the Gospels, don't we, that we need to bear fruits of repentance, Another way to say it, producing evidence you've repented. You cannot identify an apple tree unless you see the apples. Repentance is not genuine unless it's visible. The Apostle Paul said this to King Agrippa in Acts 26, that a genuine Christian produces fruit worthy of repentance, visible actions worthy of demonstrating that genuine repentance has happened. Judah puts his father and Benjamin before himself. He gives himself in Benjamin's place. His chains of heart is obvious, isn't it? It's one thing for Judah to say these things about his guilt. It's one thing to say he's repentant. It's quite another to say, take me as your slave. Let Benjamin go home. The fruits of repentance are demonstrated so that others can see. Repentance is not just words. It results in visible actions that lend credibility to the real change being claimed. Repentance is visible. Number five, finally, 
Genuine repentance is unilateral. That is to say, it's one-sided. It doesn't come with expectations about what someone else needs to do. Judah has no idea what's going to happen next. He certainly isn't expecting restoration. I mean, as far as Judah's concerned, Joseph is long gone. And even in this situation, he's not thinking, okay, what do I have to say to manipulate the situation so that things are restored back to where they were and we can all go home? No. The absolute best case in Judah's mind is that he's a slave in Egypt the rest of his life. And Benjamin and the rest can go home. That's best case. But what about us? What are we sometimes thinking in the back of our minds when we're supposedly repenting? Hey, what do I have to say and do to get things back the way they were before I sinned? Brothers and sisters, that's not repentance. Repentance doesn't come with an agenda or terms for someone else. Repentance isn't focused at all with the other party's response. Now, repentance may lead to reconciliation or even restoration in some cases. But genuine repentance doesn't concern itself with those things. It certainly does not expect restoration or anything from the other party. It is unilateral. It is only concerned with our own sin. That's Judah. Think of the prodigal son returning home. He has no agenda other than confessing to his father. In fact, he explicitly says, doesn't he, I'm not worthy to be restored as your son. I'm actually telling you, the one against whom I've sinned, that restoration is not a possibility. It's not on my mind. What would be merciful, but I'm not expecting it, is that you hire me like a servant, just like someone else applying for a job. That would be merciful. No expectations he would be restored to the relationship. He wasn't trading on his act of repentance to get something in return, to get back into the family. So don't expect anything from others. Hey, I repented, so what do I get? That's not genuine. Repentance doesn't come with any terms. It comes by itself. It's one-sided expecting nothing. You will rob yourself of the genuineness of repentance if you come with expectations from another party. Now, of course, repentance is one part of potential reconciliation. It is a necessary part, but it's the only part you're responsible for as the guilty party. So that's your focus. This is so practical, isn't it? I hope you find this practical in all of our relationships. It's my prayer that each of us put this genuine repentance into practice this week and maybe even this afternoon. Repentance isn't something you do once at conversion. Repentance is a lifestyle for someone who's born again. As the great reformer Martin Luther said in his 95 theses, this was thesis number one. Our Lord and Master Jesus Christ wills the entire life of believers to be one of repentance. Finally, in your outline, letter B, Judah not only models for us genuine repentance and how he responds to his own sin, but for different reasons, he's a shadow of his great descendant, the Lord Jesus Christ, our Redeemer and King. In the U.S., we do not live in a monarchy, but with every presidential election season, we're reminded, aren't we, about leadership qualities or lack thereof. And we long for good leadership. We long for our king to return. 
As we considered earlier, Judah takes the leadership of the 12 sons here, foreshadowing his descendant, King David, who unified the 12 tribes of the monarchy. And Judah does it in a matter in a manner that his future descendants, the kings, could imitate. He models godly leadership. He, he shows what all future kings of Israel, he shows them what a real king looks like and how he should rule. And what do we see here? Courage, incredible courage, humility, sacrifice, putting the needs of others ahead of yourself. As Waltke says, Judah exhibits Israel's ideals of kingship in spades. The brothers have become the kingdom of God, a family fit to rule the world. Judah prefigures not only his descendant, King David, but his greater descendant, King Jesus, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the only perfect king and perfect redeemer. Longman says this, Judah's self-sacrificing love for his brother for the sake of his father prefigures the vicarious atonement of Christ who by his voluntary sufferings heals the breach between God and human beings. This is the good news. This is the gospel. The breach between us sinners and a holy God can be healed by Jesus. Jim Boyce notes that later Moses would be willing to be sent to hell for the sake of his people. In Romans, Paul expressed a willingness to be accursed if it would mean the salvation of those he loved. But none of them actually had to do it. And even if they had, they would have been sacrificing themselves for only people very much like themselves. Not so in the case of Jesus. His sacrifice was made for those very unlike himself. We are sinners. He's the sinless one. We are unlovely and unloving. Only he possesses the perfect love that reaches out to us when we're in rebellion against him. Jesus pleaded for us before his father and said, in effect, I'm willing to endure all judgment to save these sinful, rebellious unbelieving people and the father whose plan it was also and who sent the son for this purpose said I accept your substitution let me tie these two application points together as we close we have all sinned against God only he is good if you genuinely repent of your sin against him in humility confession visibility with the heart we've talked about today and we see in Judah. You can experience this gift of substitution that Jesus did for us on the cross. And if you repent, the Bible says, it is a monumental event in the presence of God in heaven. Jesus says in Luke 15, I tell you there is joy before the angels of God over one sinner who repents. Maybe you've been running from God. You cannot run forever. God in his mercy caught up to Judah and his brothers after 22 years. And in his mercy, he reaches out to you today. The Bible says in Numbers 32, your sin will find you out. The secrets of all hearts will be disclosed. All hidden things will be brought to light from the darkness. Without Jesus on that day, you are fully exposed You will be weighed on the scales and found wanting. That's the bad news. Here's the good news. Like Judah, 
was a willing substitute for Benjamin. Jesus is a willing substitute for you. Turn from your sin, trust in him, worship him. This is your redeemer. This is your king. Please stand with me as we close. Our Father, we're so grateful for this magnificent story of Judah. May those here who need to repent, may, you, may your Holy Spirit work on their hearts right now that they might turn from their sin and embrace you. Lord, for your own that have been running, may they turn, may they experience your mercy. May they keep short accounts with you. We're so grateful for the perfect redemption of the Lord Jesus Christ. And we say Maranatha because we cannot wait for him to come back and reign as king forever. Amen.